A quick warning for listeners, this podcast may get graphic. It is, of course, about the Bible. Welcome to the Brothers Berkeley, a Bible study podcast aimed at responsible reading and application of the Bible. I'm your host, Spencer Berkeley. And I'm your other host, Tyler Berkeley. All right, let's get started. Chapter 1, The Call of Jeremiah. As we begin the book of Jeremiah, we have two contexts to keep in mind. First, what we might call the historical setting of Jeremiah, beginning in 628 BC. The second, we might consider to be the text's setting of Jeremiah, sometime after 587 BC where exiled Hebrews would have gathered together to hear the word of Jeremiah read aloud. The message they will hear is harsh, hard to accept, and a bitter pill to swallow. If most of it had not already happened, the people would not listen. I think it's worth remembering that we're talking about both and. Hmm. That Jeremiah was most certainly a historical figure. What we have is a text that is addressed to people that the historical Jeremiah might not have addressed. Say that again. That was good. The intended audience for the text is likely not Jeremiah's original audience, the historical Jeremiah's audience. Who is the intended audience? Of the text? Yeah. They are those Hebrews who are in exile. But the Hebrews actually hearing the words of Jeremiah are people preparing to be after the Assyrian I don't know, onslaught, but before the Babylonian onslaught. Right, right. Okay. They are the people under Josiah's reign. The people hearing Jeremiah, Jeremiah is speaking to them in this in-between place, but the people that are actually reading and preserving the text are different people than the ones actually hearing the words of Jeremiah, right? Right. Over time, there were sets of people preserving uh, the language of Jeremiah, the actual poetry that he puts out. Right. As we mentioned in the intro, the, the Bergamon quote that I shared talked about the preservation of the theological person mm. of Jeremiah, the exemplar that he was, the role he played as the prophet. But this isn't something new. Even consider conservative scholars will agree that Isaiah, for example, is written by at least two different people. Mm. And the more open-minded Maybe scholars would even entertain the idea of three different Isaiahs because they're being written before, during, and after the exile. Right. So we know that this development of texts, that's not just something that happens in Jeremiah. It's something not exceptional. Right. This is not an exceptional. This is kind of the way it happens. And even we could probably say this about many other texts, right? There is a special situation going on with the Assyrian and Babylonian onslaught and then being in exile, but also like just the development of ancient texts alone probably gives this situation, gives over to the situation of development over time. Sure. 
So, for example, in chapter 4, Jeremiah is going to use the term tohu vavahu. Mm. That's the word for the earth was empty and void. The second second verse, I think, of Genesis 1, the creation hymn. Yeah. That phrase doesn't show up anywhere else in the Old Testament. All of the other phrases are bohu or some variation. The suggestion is the creation hymn was written during exile. Right. But traditionally, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Which goes to the complication of the difference between oral history versus written down understandings of it, right? And of course, they started writing down their texts during exile because they were worried they were going to be losing yeah, or tradition. As yeah, definitely. Powers and foreign myths began to come in and influence. Okay. Then let's get back to the paragraph I read says the second historical setting we might consider is the text setting of Jeremiah sometime after 587 BC, BC, where exiled Hebrews would have gathered together to hear the word of Jeremiah read out loud, meaning this is after some sort of gathering of Jeremiah's poetry in exile, not necessarily Jeremiah speaking to them. And I know that's silly to kind of reiterate over and over again, but it is something to actually like connect in your brain that the difference between hearing Jeremiah speak and hearing his poetry. I mean, it's the difference between us hearing Shakespeare, Edgar Allan Poe versus actually being there with him. The message they hear is harsh, hard to accept, and a bitter pill to swallow. If most had most of it had not already happened, the people would not listen. So what do you think about like the difficulty, the harshness of the message, as well as the people's willingness to listen? I think the harshness of the, the language and the message, we're going to be constantly approaching that throughout. Some statements are harsher than others. Some are justified and some seem to be overly harsh. Yeah. So we'll have to handle those kind of one by one. The idea of the people not listening comes down to a sense of hindsight is 2020. Yeah. Sort of, sort of idea that when we look back on even our history in America and we say the Native American genocide is terrible and, and slavery is awful. On the one hand, we are absolutely correct. And on the other hand, we have no concept of the driving forces behind those movements and why those people did what they did. Well, there is a certain amount of moral superiority we feel looking back, even for ourselves. I think that's what it comes down to is that when Jeremiah's warnings end up be- becoming true, that's, that's the best reason of all to preserve what he was saying. Like you pointed out, the genocide of the Native Americans and then with slavery, I mean... It's a different idea to listen to Jeremiah as he's speaking versus to listen to the words of Jeremiah read to you and understand them again. And there is this real understanding of the harshness and the acceptance of it. It is compelling in the way that says, God, we should really be willing to accept those harsh words when they're spoken as opposed to when they're read again and again, which is also the reason why 
they should be read again and again, right? Is so that kind of stated this already that in application of Jeremiah, that it's not so much that this is a one to one understanding analogous application in which we can say, well, Jeremiah spoke this and then what he was actually talking about was, you know, X, Y, and Z in our day, but rather that, God, if they would have only paid attention when he was speaking to begin with, what that would have looked like as opposed to having to have it read aloud to you years later in a completely different situation. Going back to genocide and slavery, it's like, well, we still have problems today that are based off of those things because people didn't heed any naysayers' understanding of that, right? We still have huge problems that are a matter of life and death for millions of people in our country, the U.S., this very day, I, I heard different discussions about COVID-19 and basically the call to reopen as opposed to the, the call to be more conservative and basically trying to preserve life as much as possible. The reality is, again, that's not a one-to-one -one for the call of Jeremiah. And like, even today, you have people saying, let's try and do the most extreme thing for the sake of things that we think will save us, as opposed to like listening to people's words of caution or of real reserved hair in many times, like not listening to professionals over whatever else. Again, not a one-to-one -one example of Jeremiah. Not saying that Dr. Fauci is Jeremiah by any means. However, it is one of these things. It would be just... Of biblical proportions, it would be such a shame to find ourselves in a completely altered society due to a pandemic, and then to go, oh, I guess we should reread those words of Dr. Fauci after the <laughs> after the, the term. And I will say this, even though I don't agree with people that are like, we should get out there, reopen the economy. That's not my view. But there's also a sense in which it's like, there is a point of taking care of working people that may or may not be the point of what they're saying, and may or may not be the point of what Dr. Fauci is saying. There are kind of all these voices, which we're talking about Jeremiah, like, how do we come to talk about Jeremiah as opposed to tens of other people that may have been saying doomsday type of messages? Or why is Jeremiah in the Bible, basically, as opposed to other prophets or other speakers, other poets? We could predict that there are going to be other people that we're going to look back on in this COVID-19 era. And we're going to go, oh, they were right. And so we kind of keep them in our mind. We don't know who those people are going to be yet. Even among the major prophets, Ezekiel and Isaiah, Jeremiah's message is morose. Hope is reserved for the future. It is for this reason that Jeremiah's call comes from the womb. Many commentaries delve into the ideas of predestination and God's sovereignty over individual human lives. But for Jeremiah, in his historical and textual context, before you were formed in the womb, I knew you, endows Jeremiah's message with the authority needed for his proclamation. Hmm. I guess the same question stands. Oh, yeah, in answer to your question, the reason why Jeremiah's message makes it through is because he's the only one who is actually kind of doom and gloom hmm. about all these. His message 
could be and probably was considered treasonous. God, doesn't uh, that apply today? Man. Right? That that declaring the truth and, and witnessing to the truth is is called treason. Huh. Is where Jeremiah is and the message that Jeremiah has. The other prophets that he's the false prophets that he's speaking against and contradicting are the ones who are going to be saying, uh, you're not a real patriot. You're not a real Judahite. You're yeah, not uh, a real Israelite. I was reading in the commentary that's by Clements about how, you know, a major decision to go against like Davidic lines of belief or Davidic priests, essentially, like people who were in the house of David who would have spoken about prosperity and continuation of prosperity through uh, Davidic lines. So David being kind of the messianic line that will bring about the Messiah, right? And that that was supposed to continue. And somebody speaking about essentially doom and gloom about Judah, well, that's really problematic for that. And yeah, I think unpatriotic is a really good way to phrase that as far as identification with who is going to be your leader, the prosperity and and ongoing salvation of your nation, how that's going to happen. Understanding that and understanding that there's somebody speaking against that to a degree as the truth, that's really problematic. That's challenging. I think that also makes the call that comes from the womb kind of just as poignant in view of like, the Davidic line being one that God is going to somehow uh, ensure. If God is also at the same time preparing other people from the womb to speak against it, it's God preparing all those things. There's nobody else who could stand against it other than somebody else who is also prepared by God. Does that make sense? No. Can you explain more? Well, if Jeremiah is going to end up speaking against the Davidic line, that's a line prepared and set by God. Meaning, God is essentially preparing the Davidic line in their womb the whole way along. That's the idea. However, if I'm going to speak against something that God has prepared from the womb, then I better be also prepared from the womb, in that mm. sense. This is my reading. At the same time, I think that does come into a similar play of, if you have a, a line of somebody that is going to be basically from womb to womb a part of God's plan, then you also better be prepared by God from birth. That birth better also be of God's ordaining. Otherwise, you're not coming from the same root as the Davidic line. I don't know. I think that's a very interesting understanding. Yeah. It may be a, it may be a stretch. I, I'm not saying I'm, I'm drawing parallels that I, that I'm seeing with, I did a uh, Samuel 7 exegesis in college, like about mm -hmm. the house of David. So take it for what you will. But I think it's very interesting that Jeremiah comes from the womb. I think you are getting the nature of that. I think the problem that I'm stating in this paragraph is we are so often asking those psychological 
even theological questions that don't matter to the text. Right, right. That what matters to the text is exactly what you're talking about. If you're going to be talking about the doom and gloom of God's people who are supposed to be driven forward into prosperity by God's own choosing and will and covenant, even the Davidic covenant, then you better have the best explanation for why you're allowed to say those things. Right. I think that's a really good understanding of saying something like, same with COVID. There are people saying, stay inside, it's going to save lives. Wear a mask, it's going to save lives. Flatten the curve, it's going to save lives. And then the retaliation is economic. While those are tied, while those might have, you know, you can make your stances about it. I think there is this sense in which there's medical data, there's moral understanding. There are these different situations in which we can say this is right, this is wrong, this is whatever, this is going to save lives for sure. Instead of trying to like compensate, mitigate that message so that we can have our economic way, we need to accept the message. Meaning, even now, you have things that do work. Social distancing does work. Staying inside does work. The fight against it is an economic reasoning, which is completely understandable. Except for, what if we didn't compromise the medical understanding? What if we didn't compromise? Like, hey, if you stay at home, fewer people will get sick. And instead, we compromise the way that we deal with our economy. But it's also short-sighted. The the problem with even the COVID-19 arguments are that the, the reason why we're in this mess is because of too much concern about the economy. Right, right. Too much concern about numbers and not enough concern about people. The idea is a little bit of an investment up front would have comparatively solved the situation already. And we wouldn't have seen any mal effects on the economy. Well, or minimal. Right. Right. But because we were foolish, because our leaders were foolish at the front, here we are. Yeah. I think that's a, again, these are not completely one for one. I think there are plenty of critique to be had about the application of understanding. We're trying to save lives, and there are other things that other things that can be changed. And our economy is definitely one of them, if it means saving lives. And yet, I think there's this narrative of, well, the economy is how we save lives. Unfortunately, I think that's the that's the same narrative we've been given about, you know, when the stock market's up, people are doing good. When unemployment is down, or people are doing good. Unfortunately, like that's also not necessarily the case. We at least have to open up the conversation to letting COVID-19 and also a kind of doomsday understanding <laughs> critique our economy. Not saying, again, not saying that this text is speaking directly to this situation, but also, like, we should allow it to critique us. And I think there's plenty of critique to be had. It's a from-the-womb type of critique. It is something that is, you can't just throw off. A pandemic is not something to be dealt with lightly. So, any comments about 
abortion before we move on? The commentary that I was using decided to use that verse about before you were formed in the womb, I knew you, to talk about pro-life and anti-abortion sort of views. That is a complete misapplication and misreading of the text. God does value life. I personally fall on a moral and ethical fault line. Morally, in all truth, I see abortion as something evil and, and greedy. I also ethically see the problem of dictating to someone something that our society allows and telling them that they are not allowed to do that based on my personal convictions. That being said, this verse has nothing to do with that. Kind of earlier, how I was talking about coming from the womb, you know, the Davidic line and stuff like that. I think that's a much better, at least drawing for trying to understand and contextualize the text. There's a much more deep understanding as opposed to applying it to our political situations. Even to say that the COVID-19 talk, the things that we might talk about here, those are not perfect applications. Those are things that we're trying to make and let the text read us. And perhaps if you want God's sovereignty and understanding of Jeremiah to be something that reads and informs your views about uh, abortion, I think that's fine. Like, I think that's an appropriate allowance. It's not what the text is talking about by any means. Right. You did remind me of the fact that Jeremiah is from Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, which I understand that it doesn't stand out to us right now, but that's not Jerusalem. This isn't the high priest getting a word from God. This isn't the up-and-comer. This isn't the prodigy at the temple. This is a guy three miles out from Jerusalem in the middle of nowhere Three miles might be an hour and a half walk for them, but in this day, we're talking about nations that are 20 and 50 miles across. We're talking about someone who lives almost a world away kind of idea that you and I live four hours away from each other, four and a half hours away from each other. We live in completely different states and in completely different social worlds. Jeremiah is not coming from the world of political savvy and opulence. Jeremiah is coming from a Levitical town, so he is connected to the priesthood in some way. He's just not good enough. He's not coming from a place you would expect. When he comes into Jerusalem to proclaim this stuff, he's not only coming as a young boy, he's coming as an outsider. And that's worth noting just from the beginning. We're not talking about somebody who came up in the priesthood and decided to toss it all away right. when approached by God. I think that's an important, and that draws lines of kind of reminiscent lines through even the call of David being the unsuspected one, the one that people were not waiting for, uh, just a boy. Even later on, whenever we talk about Jesus coming from Nazareth, that distinction of where Jeremiah is from does give us this both unsuspected intentionality of God choosing Jeremiah, as opposed to it being a, a systematic understanding of 
the way that the culture had lifted Jeremiah up to this position as opposed to God's choosing of Jeremiah. So I think that does give a good start contrast. Judgment is coming for Judah and Jerusalem. It is already on its way. What Jeremiah will counsel is an alliance with those who are bringing Yahweh's wrath. Embracing discipline does not come easy and the people will seek any other available alternative. Because of this, Jeremiah's life will be threatened. Yahweh's promise to be with Jeremiah and deliver him from those who seek his life reminds us of a haunting truth every major prophet will bring to light. Just because God is with us does not mean God is for us. Anything to say about that? Judgment is coming from Judah and Jerusalem. It is already on its way. I don't know, not to get into application too quickly or even or even to chapter 2 too quickly, but just a contextual understanding, going back to the first thing we talked about with Jeremiah being speaking in one time and maybe being read or listened to in another time, the understanding that judgment was coming for Judah and Jerusalem and that that's what Jeremiah is speaking to. But also, like, afterwards, there's an understanding for these people listening to it that it's already on its way, you know, it's already there. It's weird to understand how, I think for many of us, we can both see how the critiques of society, we can both get to listen to them and then get to see the effects of them. Like, life moves fast enough for us where we get to see both of those happen. But it's just so interesting to think about, you know, Jeremiah being speaking and then being read or, or listened to in another way is just... It's just interesting. And then to see that those critiques, even though they might be listened to, you can hear the same people speak and then hear see the same people deny it as well. Is it just a very interesting difference of our time versus where Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah comes from? Just Yeah, I think part of that is a culture of prosperity. I saw a Reddit question. Ask Reddit, hey, why is the U.S. the only country that's having protests about stay-at-home orders? They weren't trying to be sarcastic. They were genuinely asking. One of the best answers was because this is a country where the only people who remember hardship are the exceptionally old. The generations before us have known times some discomfort, but they haven't gone through times of actual hardship. It's one of the things that actually legitimizes the idea that America is the most prosperous nation or has been. Sorry, America is the most prosperous country on the planet that we have at least two or three generations of people who most of the majority of them have not known hardship. Hardship is not a shared experience in America. That's what I would say. Hardship is not a shared experience in America. The critique of that answer would just be like, yeah, there are people who have been struggling for a long time, who have literally been struggling for generations. But... But there is a sense of, like, even some of the groups that we're naming have never had to garden so that they won't starve. Right. I think it's more like there's never been a situation where we collectively have to not rely on the system in the ways that we do. The system may be really, really bad for even the majority of people. 
but even the majority of people can still kind of work within that system and make do, even though it might be very difficult. That's different from the system collapsing and having to figure out a different way of life and really to see that happen. What Jeremiah will counsel is an alliance with those who are bringing Yahweh's wrath. Jeremiah is counseling the bringing of Yahweh's wrath. He's not counseling an alliance or a reliance on economy or an alliance with Egypt or an alliance with Assyrian forces or whatever it might be. Whereas I do think there is a sense in application to struggles now where instead of relying and saying, hey, there are ways that we could reshape the system. There are ways that we could really struggle through and change. There is this kind of how we can rely on good old economy. We can make do through and power through getting people back to work, making sure that we have pushed people back into their old ways of living. And there is a sense of if you're somebody speaking against and saying, hey, bad things are going to happen. This is going to be shitty. And we got to figure out how to take care of this and take care of people. And I would even say, like, the really depressing part is I'm seeing this mostly from leaders. People say things on Facebook, let's get our economy back and stuff like that. I'm not seeing from, like, most leaders, I'm not seeing them propose things that are making sure that working class people have money and health care and housing, whatever it might be, in protection of some sort if they have to go to work. Rather, you still even see in our power systems this desire to get people back to work. And then you see those same working class people that will be endangered saying like, oh, that's the solution. You do see alliances, alliances with the way things were as a form of safety, as a form of assurance of our prosperity. Instead of trying to have any sense of disciplining our leaders and by disciplining our leaders i mean just like actually participating in saying we need to make sure that working class people in in this country are taken care of i think there are a lot of imperfect parallels of the way that we rely upon uh certain things to get us by even even the sense that we would rely upon our government, I don't know that there's that many people doing that necessarily, but even that sense is kind of disturbing that we we don't even break ranks with that to like rely on neighbors. <laughs> but last thing, it, it's a major point. What do you make of the idea that just because God is with us does not mean God is for us? I I guess I had a question about like, uh, because of this, Jeremiah's life will be threatened. Yahweh's promise to be with Jeremiah and deliver him from those who seek his life reminds us of a haunting truth every major prophet will bring to light. Just because God is with us does not mean God is for us. Do you mean that about Jeremiah or, or about the people he's talking to? What exactly do you mean there? I mean, if you read them closely, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel they will all communicate that in some form or another. Jeremiah has the direct promise. God being with him means that God will deliver him. That's not true for everybody. For Isaiah, his message goes, hey, God is here. God is with us. And he doesn't like any of you. 
Yeah. He's not on any of your guys' side, so watch out. Hmm. I think that's a real point that is actually more application. Like, I think it's a true theological point. I think it's a true biblical point. I think it's something that our generation, in the public theology conversations that I've heard, God is with us always assumes the sense that God is for us. That's never the case. That is not the blanket case. I think that's overwhelmingly the real critique. That's the juxtaposition of God is with us. That doesn't mean God is for our desires and our will and our way of being. God is not for salvation through our means. Rather, God is for God's salvation through God. <laughs> you know, God is for God's uh, uh, saving grace, like, through what God's going to do. Not for what you're going to do or for what you want to do. Kind of gets us into chapter 2, where the case against Israel and Judah, the, the real problem is that Israel and Judah are assuming that because God is with us, that means that we get to do whatever we want. As an application, an American application, that is overwhelmingly, like, rough to think that, sure, I, I think there's plenty of ways that we could say God has been, and the, the Christian tradition has been a part of the development of the United States of America. I think that's fine to say. That doesn't mean God's for what we have proclaimed. We're proclaiming a lot of stuff and then saying, well, God's, well, this is a Christian nation. God's with us. It's like, well, God may be with us, but God's like, hey, you got to stop doing that stuff. You're not doing it right. It's as if Israel, or rather Judah, is saying, well, we can go to Egypt and make alliances with Egypt and be reliant on Egypt to save us. And God backs us because God's, God's with us, right? Yahweh is with us, but we're going to rely on Egypt to save us. That's not a reliance on Yahweh. That's a reliance on Egypt. In the same way, we do that a million times over with whatever it might be, our, our military, our economy, our faux religious persuasions. To me, it's overwhelming. This idea of God is with us does not mean God is for us necessarily. It's more indicting than anything. If God is with you and you're still not getting it right, God, you're dim-witted. You're one stupid person. You're one stupid country if God is with you, and you're still just like ignoring God and ignoring what you're supposed to be doing. So much so that God can't even be for you. Right. And moreover, it points out that God does take, take political sides. That God is for a certain side. God does have a preference in how we govern ourselves mm -hmm. and how we govern and alliance ourselves. In chapter 5, Jeremiah is going to mention that, that he goes to the poor, puts his proclamation out, and then he says, but these are only the poor. They have no sense. They don't know the way of the Lord. They don't know the love of their God. Let me go to the rich and speak to them. <laughs> this sense that God is always on the side of the poor. I've heard some of the most respected pastors and professors I've ever had say that. And 
this case still stands. Just because God is with us does not mean God is for us. Even the poor in Jeremiah's day are being approached with a proclamation of God, and they're still going to be judged by it. God has a political opinion, and it doesn't just cut across who's poor and who's rich, who's oppressed and who's not. God has a political opinion that is more sophisticated and and more subtle than yours, and we need to come to grips with that. I think this whole time we've kind of, it's been kind of in the background, but, and we said it in the setup of our discussion of this, of this being a message for everyone, for all of the nation of Israel. It's for both kingdoms. It's for everybody. I know I think about being in the suburbs of Oklahoma City, buying a house and having a, a job, still getting paid during a pandemic, not unemployed, basically being fine. And it's like there are so many, so many ways in which we're still a part of all the problems that I've discussed about the economy and reliance on it, about wanting safety, having all these opinions about what people should be doing. We're still judged by this. Our involvement is still a part of the problem in many ways. Our our involvement is still, it's still in there. It doesn't go away just because we think we're right right now. That's such a hard, a hard critique upon the individual for sure. I don't know that it's meant to be an individual critique so much. As we sit here as individuals rereading the text and trying to like uh, uh, have some sort of application upon our lives and especially not getting to interact too much with other people. I would go to the extent of saying, hey, maybe we'll be judged for being born and raised and living in America. I trust that God's judgment and justice is more subtle than that, and I hope in that. But if that's his judgment, it's earned. I guess I wonder what, you know, for exiled people at that time, if you're hearing this, what is your sense of what people might be understanding? What does it mean to like kind of have that realization of just because God is with us does not mean God is for us in hindsight? So what does it mean to be in exile and kind of realize like, oh, God was with us. That doesn't mean that Yahweh agreed with what we were doing and what we were proclaiming and trying for. And now we're here. Now we're in exile. What does that mean? And what does that mean on the judgment of the people that maybe died during that time? What does it mean to be hearing these words separated and kind of even wondering if God is still with you? I have two things. First, it's the idea that the judgment we're talking about, I think, unless it is explicitly specified, the judgment that Jeremiah is going to be talking about is most definitely political and this worldly. We're not talking about this sort of eternal courtroom right. idea. We should be very, very careful about that. God reserves the right to judge everybody at the end of all things. So that's the first thing. I've been asking myself as we've been studying this book, it's really hard to study any of the major prophets in the middle of a pandemic. 
<laughs> when you step back for a second and look at it, you start going, okay, there's this world leader, this world leader, this world leader, and this world leader, and they're all corrupt and all unjust. Then a COVID virus just happens to evolve enough and adapt enough to be a pandemic across the face of the earth. Right. Mm, according to what I've been reading. <laughs> it's easy to apply it broad, broad got, stroke, right? Got a lot of judgment to come upon us. At the same time, one of the things that comes out is this idea that God's wrath doesn't come without the people's involvement. And I think this is something that ends up coming out throughout Jeremiah. God's wrath comes in varying degrees. Even Jeremiah is going to say, hey, it's not going to be as bad for you. It's still going to come, but it's not going to be as bad for you if you recognize it now and mm -hmm. act accordingly. I think that applies not one-to-one, -one, as you've been saying, but right. the fact is that this pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, ended up spreading across America because, one, incompetence of leadership, but also, two, as we're seeing even now, neighbors not being concerned for one another. I heard a story the other day of a pastor who wore a mask to Walmart. And while he was in the bathroom, somebody he called a Confederate flag hatter, which I just love that term, is reminiscent of the Mad Hatter, said, ah, so you do whatever the government tells you? And he debated it within himself for just the momentary seconds, and he decided that when you're trying to witness in other countries, you have to speak the language. So what he did was he leaned in and he said, nah, man. I'm just afraid of letting these Chinese Muslims infect me with their illness. And the guy stepped back for a second and kind of second-guessed and said, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> it's just like it was, using people's racism against them, is that way? <laughs> what I came away with was wear a mask for other people's protection. I'll at least wear a mask for my own protection. <laughs> It's, it's hugely manipulative, of course, but the idea is... Well, no, I, I think that's like the, the unfortunate part is just because God is with us does not mean God is for us. Just because freedom may be some sort of ideal that in some ways is so good. It's not the end-all, be-all of who we are. And whenever you replace that as your identity, you start replacing the care for your neighbor, the consciousness of and, and humility of who you might be within your own freedom. Freedom's great. I don't need all the freedom in the world, because I'll do things I shouldn't do. I need my constraints, and so do you. Freedom without community is... Right. Like, freedom without any consideration oh. of anyone else. If that's what you're going for, like you've lost all sense of why you're free to begin with. I guess to bring it back to Jeremiah, I mean, I, I, I would imagine there's certain understandings of how we can relate with God and that will save us or relate with other entities and God is with us. So that will save us. And yet it's, 
missing the point. It's mm. missing what God is really trying to do in our lives. It has no purpose. It's just self-serving. Mm. And God's right there with us while we're self-serving. I mean, it's masturbatory in that sense. God is sitting there with us while this masturbatory action is happening and going, we could be making love, but instead... That seems to be what happens so often, though, is it's you you keep wanting freedom at the cost of loving your neighbor, of real community. Thanks for listening to the Brothers Berkeley, a Bible study podcast. Remember, you can contact us at thebrothersberkeley at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-B-R-O-T-H-E-R-S. B-E-R-K-L-E-Y at gmail.com Until next time, be responsible in your reading and application.